Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. I'm Jim Healy, the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. The Cinematheque's free view-at-home selection for this week is the acclaimed and influential documentary Jazz on a Summer's Day, originally released in 1959. Filmed at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival in Rhode Island and directed by world-renowned photographer Bert Stern, Jazz on a Summer's Day features intimate performances by an all-star lineup of musical legends including Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Jerry Mulligan, Anita O'Day, Chuck Berry, Dinah Washington, and closes with a stunning midnight rendition of the Lord's Prayer by Mahalia Jackson to usher in Sunday morning. Setting the template for all contemporary concert movies, Jazz on a Summer's Day features the innovative editing of soon-to-be director Aram Avakian and has been beautifully and extensively restored in 4K from the best surviving vault elements by Indie Collect. Beginning September 3rd, the Cinematheque has a limited number of opportunities to view this new restoration of Jazz on a Summer's Day at home for free. To receive access, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's I-N-F-O at cinema.wisc.edu. And make sure to have the word jazz in the subject line or the first line of the email. Later in this podcast, the Cinematech's Ben Reiser leads a discussion on filmmaker, editor, and university professor Aram Avakian and his contributions to Jazz on a Summer's Day. But first, Cinematech programmer Mike King talks with UW-Madison professor of film and jazz aficionado Jeff Smith about the cultural and historical significance of the artists who appeared at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival and the influence of jazz on a summer's day on subsequently made concert movies. Much of Jeff Smith's work and research deals with film scores and music's relationship to movies. He's the author of two books, The Sounds of Commerce, Marketing Popular Film Music, and Film Criticism, The Cold War and the Blacklist, Reading the Hollywood Reds. He is also a regular contributor of commentary via the Observations on Film Art segments on the Criterion channel. Here's Mike King and Jeff Smith. Picture me upon your knee, cheeky, but two and two, but you can't you see how happy we could be. Nobody near us, dear, dear, it's fast, we nice and gather cash, we'll have it now, we own a telephone there. Don't break and you wait with me The bank of sugar can't get you to take my olive voice to see We can rise a family boy Before you get up for me Can't you see how happy we can be with three uh, Jeff, welcome to Cinema Talk Hi, it's uh, great to be here so we have this gleaming restoration of Jazz on a Summer's Day here before us, looking as good as the day it was filmed over 60 years ago. Uh, what are your you know, initial impressions seeing it now in 2020 of the film? Well, uh, first of all, your observation that the film looks amazing is, is uh, uh, completely accurate. It's um, uh, you know, a very colorful film in many ways, in part because of the way it combines footage of the America's Cup race along with the concert footage. Um, and what's striking about it in some ways is how it has a sort of day-night structure. 
Mm -hmm. um, where much of the early part of the film, there is this kind of running gag of, you know, a band playing in a jalopy or in these very kind of unusual locations next to the ocean and so forth. There's footage of kids at play, the ships sailing. And so much of the first part seems to mix pretty equally footage of the concert performers with what we would see as kind of a day in the life of Newport, mm -hmm. uh, albeit one, it's a pretty special day because they're hosting the Jazz Festival and the America's Cup. But there is this little element almost of city symphony kind of little vignettes about everyday life. Uh, and then when night falls, it really does become just uh, very strikingly a kind of concert documentary. Um, the lighting is different. It looks different. Um, and uh, that sense of this as a day in the festival is a very carefully constructed um, kind of impression that the film wishes to uh, leave with the viewer because part of what you most people might know about the Newport uh, jazz festival is this isn't a single day right. you know uh, the festival always unfolded over three or four days um, and so part of what the filmmakers did in curating this is, and it, you know, today might seem even a little bit controversial amongst documentary filmmakers to manipulate a little of the chronology because they mix daytime performances from both Saturday and Sunday and nighttime performances from both Saturday and Sunday to create the impression of a singles, single day of the festival. It's a pretty seamless effect, though. I have to say, you know, watching it without knowing that necessarily, it does, you know, sort of convey its aims of seeming like a day of the fest. We get a pretty wide variety of performers throughout the film. I wonder if there are any performances that particularly resonate with you. Um, I think there are a number of performances that are, are very interesting in part because we are seeing um, a you know, kind of window on jazz as a, you know, as a musical culture in 1958. Um, and it's interesting to see how much of the film is trying to mix what seem to be, you know, uh, artists who are really rising in terms of their career trajectory versus those who are really are kind of established canonical figures. So in some ways, the performance that that probably resonates the most is the one by Louis Armstrong, in part because he was by 1958 a kind of controversial figure um, because he had been such a pioneer. His reputation was largely established on the strength of his Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings in the late 1920s. He had become kind of a huge outsized personality based on the fact that, you know, he was featured in things like Betty Boop cartoons and, you know, lots of uh, film appearances in things like New Orleans or A Song is Born. So he really was uh, a kind of musical celebrity. Um, in a way that uh, someone like Dizzy Gillespie or Charlie Parker really weren't in the late 1940s. And because of that, there is a very clearly an attempt to create uh, uh, 
a kind of aura around um, Louis as really being an entertainer, a musician who saw himself really as a kind of ambassador for the world of jazz to um, to uh, the rest of the music world. Um, and some of that really then depended on uh, a certain image of Louis as someone who was there to please, someone who was there to, you know, when he does his routine with Jack Teagarden doing Rock and Cheer, this is the kind of thing that it's a little bit like, you know, Abbott and Costello bringing out the Who's on First routine. It is something they had done for a long time, and it plays very well, and, you know, Louis is in, enormously charming. But it's hard to compare something like that to, say, the duet we get with um, uh, Jerry Mulligan and Art Farmer, which seems to come from a completely different sort of musical universe. Um, and that's part of the reason why Armstrong was kind of controversial. Um, part of his persona was really uh, drawing from certain traditions of blackface minstrelsy, which he was popularizing and you know was one of the reasons why um, he fit very snugly into the world of animation is because many of those gags in 30s cartoons were all things that were reappropriating elements of blackface minstrelsy I mean people will talk about Mickey Mouse and the white gloves as one of those things that's a little bit of a you know touch drawn from that tradition and of course the younger bop musicians uh, in some way saw that as really pandering to um, what an expectation of a musical entertainer would be. Um, and they saw themselves very much uh, trying to promote jazz as an art form, not dance music, not a form of entertainment. Um, and so to see Armstrong, who at that point doesn't even play trumpet very much anymore, he was suffering from kind of lip problems, that would eventually be uh, treated surgically to be allowed to uh, continue. And so he's mostly a singer. And of course, he's a great singer. It's wonderful to hear him scat, but um, he seems so much a kind of throwback. And yet the crowd loves him. You know, it's so clear watching, uh, watching him in that performance that the crowd just eats it all up. They laugh at every, you know, little musical aside he offers. There's the crazy story of eating spaghetti in, the <laughs> in <laughs> Palazzo or whatever it was um, in Italy, um, wandering around London. They just soak every bit of it up. Whereas if you look at the kind of the other performance, which kind of resonates for me, is at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is Thelonious Monk, where at this point, you know, he's already played Newport a few times, but he's still being treated in the kind of announcement. And he's given this very elaborate kind of introduction, you know. Um, it's, and, like, it's like it, it's like it makes him at once seem like they're apologizing for him almost, you know, saying like, OK, he's going to do this really weird stuff. And it also makes him seem like the coolest guy ever right? <laughs> because that they need to, like, qu qualify him so much, you know. <laughs> And and that is, you know, consistent in some ways with, I think, the larger um, historical reception that Monk's work has had, where you don't 
quite know what to do with him because he's extremely important as a composer. When you look at the songs that he kind of contributed to the the canon of jazz classics, he plays Blue Monk, and that's certainly one of them, but Mysterioso, Round Midnight, Straight No Chaser, um, uh, all of these songs are things that, um, of course, he records, but Arguably, they become much, much more famous in the work of other musicians, like Miles Davis recording Round Midnight. Uh, is you know, absolutely iconic. Um, and that's partly because he, as a performer, is a, a kind of self-taught pianist. And, you know, he doesn't display the kind of fluency of what we would think of as some of the real, you know, masters of the instrument in the jazz world. You'd never mistake listening to uh, a monk performance for someone like Oscar Peterson or Art Tatum. Um, But that also becomes part of his appeal, the sense that as a self-taught musician, there's almost a kind of avant primitive quality to him you know it's weird to think of someone who is as much a canon of the jazz world as Thelonious Monk you know my uh, when I was in grad school my upstairs neighbor had like 2,000 jazz albums and had named his dog wow. Thelonious you know um, and yet he feels a little bit like an outsider artist especially in the way they don't quite know what to do do with him, you know? Um, so they both exist at these kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's kind of fascinating to see how the film presents them because in some way they're capturing what their position is at this moment in jazz history. It's probably also worth mentioning uh, that you get to see a very young Henry Grimes perform with Monk on bass. Um, he's a you know musician who had an almost searching for Sugar Man kind of career where he vanished for a while and then recently came back but he is one of several jazz luminaries who died earlier this year from coronavirus um, along with like Lee Connitz and both these guys were still active so it's just striking to see him so young in this movie it is and um, you know this is um, this is one of those things when you look at a lot of the musicians around um, uh, who are not necessarily the leaders of their their combos you know you've got eric dolphy playing uh, flute and it's pretty early in his career as well i mean he certainly becomes a much much more important figure by the uh, the 60s uh, than he is at that that moment um and of course in those cases it's you know helpful to watch the uh the end credit crawl <laughs> because these musicians aren't always going to be identified um uh, and in many cases, they will become much more important later on in their careers. But you get to see a kind of, you know, glimpse of them at this early stage. You mentioned uh, Miles Davis in earlier. Um, he's one of many performers who actually played this festival, uh, who's not featured in the movie. You know, there was Miles Davis classic sextet with John Coltrane played at the festival. Uh, Sonny Rollins, Dave Brubeck, all kinds of people played it. And it brings up an interesting question of, you know, how you think they put together how they curate not only a festival like this, which expands all the way from Chuck Berry, Mahalia Jackson, to, um, you know, Thelonious Monk or Jimmy Jufri, and then whittling it down for the film itself. Well, the question of curation, I think there's kind of an easy answer and a less easy answer, which is to say that, um, 
you're absolutely right uh, that Miles Davis, um, Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Horace Silver, there are a lot of people who are, you know, both representative of kind of jazz's future, but also someone like Goodman would be as iconic as Louis Armstrong, and they're not featured. But I think they made a, a decision that we're just going to film the performances Saturday and Sunday, because as near as I can tell, um, in looking at the days, and this is going back and looking at kind of old programs, the one consistent thing seems to be that the people featured played either on Saturday or Sunday. But it does also, you know, as I mentioned, manipulate chronology, so that um, when Mahalia Jackson appears uh, to be the person who closes that day um, and follows Louis Armstrong, to some extent, that's, you know, that seems accurate because on Saturday night at midnight, because it's Saturday turning to Sunday, this was, you know, Mahalia Jackson will uh, provide an hour of gospel music as a kind of, you know, substitute for attending church the next morning. (laughs) So, (laughs) so um, that uh, idea of Jackson kind of closing that day's performance is completely accurate. But of course, Armstrong played Sunday night and closed the entire festival, not that Saturday night. A lot of these sets that happened were not necessarily lost to time. Uh, you know, so the Miles Davis set from this very festival was later released on the Miles and Monk at Newport LP and then even later in the 70s as a full LP so you can find these things you know um, it's not the film's job necessarily to document every single thing you know it's an impossible task in a lot of ways right it would be an impossible task especially because we are talking about a film that runs you know minus the credits about 83 minutes I think so you know it's a fantastic 83 minutes and you could imagine you know a much much longer film something taking on Woodstock proportions but you know, I, I suspect that some of that is just a question of people probably didn't have much of an idea of what this type of concert film would do in terms of commercial success. It became uh, a very important film. Uh, you know, it was put on the registry for the Library of Congress for a reason. Um, but uh, I suspect that... Um, you might have had a different plan had you been doing the Newport Jazz Festival in 1972, where long music documentaries were seen as somewhat, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. This film is often cited as the first modern concert film, um, and I wonder what kind of effect do you think it might have had, you know, paving the way for a lot of these concert films that came in its wake, including, you know, the one from the Newport Folk Festival, which happened in the 60s called Festival. Um, So do you see this as sort of setting a template for uh, films that followed? Uh, I do think it does set a template for what we think of as the kind of concert and particularly the festival documentary. Um, You know, because there are other types of concert docs uh, that really focus on a single um, performer, um, and even even though you know, stop making sense is kind of the classic example of that, the Talking Heads film, where that was filmed over several successive nights, but it's 
edited in such a way that it makes you feel as though you're experiencing a single concert by uh, the band. Um, whereas concert documentaries, because we're you know, always getting just an excerpt of somebody's set, um, you get a, a sense of this really is eliding a lot, but we might be getting, you know, the best bits of what that, uh, that performance was. Um, and I think with festival, uh, documentaries in general, um, there is almost this kind of quality of, uh, best of that's a little bit like, you know, listening to great, um, sampler albums, you don't like one song particularly well, just wait till the next, you know? And I think mm-hmm. concert docs have that sort of effect where um, even if one particular performer isn't your favorite, just the kind of variety of different performances is part of what gives it pleasure. I feel like there were, of course, plenty of musical performance films before Jazz on a Summer's Day. And I wonder what kind of precedence for that the film that we're discussing you could see in history in the history of cinema well this is where even though i tend to be a little leery of you know claims about first it's hard to displace jazz on a summer's day um with something else precisely because um uh because it is a concert documentary rather than a music performance film. I mean, in some ways you could say the most uh, proximate influence would be the kind of jukebox musicals as they were known um, in the 1950s. The Girl Can't Help It, by far the most wonderful of all of those films. But there were a lot of them out there, um, uh, including Don't Knock the Rock and Rock Pretty Baby, which, as I recall, had Tuesday Weld uh, in a very early role. Um, And because those were often sequenced as individual performances um, that were kind of surrounded by kind of interstitial narrative material, often about like showing adults, you know, why rock and roll was, was great stuff. Um, Those kinds of, um, of jukebox musicals uh, were sequenced in some ways uh, in a manner that's quite similar to what you get with jazz on a summer's day where, you know, um, girl can't help it just take it because it's a, you know, I think the best of the lot. You've got Little Richard performing. You've got the Platters performing. Fats Domino, um, Gene Vincent in the Blue Caps. Uh, uh, Eddie Cochran appears, albeit on a television monitor, but we do even see you know concert footage mediated in that way. Uh, Abby Lincoln. It's you know, a roster of really great early rock and roll performers. And it seems to have that kind of time capsule quality in much the same way that um, that film like Jazz on a Summer's Day that is really capturing a kind of moment in musical culture. But they're not presented as concerts. I mean, that's what's what's particularly interesting is that this makes no attempt to tell a story. It is really mm-hmm. just about, you know, uh, sequencing performances to give a sense of what the experience of a day at the festival would be like. You can really see the contrast in that um, a lot of these performers we see in other kinds of movies. You know, you think about Chico Hamilton in Sweet Smell of Success, 
Um, yes, and yeah. I'm sure that you can come up with many more examples. But you know, jazz is often shown in like clubs and smoky venues in narrative yeah. films, and not only to see it, you know, bright summer's day like we have in this film, but also just to see these performers in a you know different context than the narrative things they might pop up in here and there. Um, yes, and and I think the you know this is where you could see the film very much trying to change a bit of what the uh, association of jazz would be with the movies because you're right to suggest um, that a lot of these are musicians who uh, had appeared in uh, different contexts in in narrative films Mahalia Jackson for example um, appears in Imitation of Life at the very end. Um, and of course you have Jerry Mulligan who appears in um, I Want to Live, uh, the uh, Robert Wise film. And and in some ways the Mulligan uh, appearance is sort of, um, sort of typical of what the typical association was with jazz in the movies where smoky clubs, often with a sense of loose women, booze and other substances flowing freely. Um, the, the suggestion of jazz is something that was part of a whole lifestyle. Now, to some degree, that was accurate. You know, um, I remember just reading the liner notes when I was uh, uh, in college and trying to soak up as much as I could about... Um, about jazz music and reading about Bud Powell, who was an alcoholic heroin addict and had tuberculosis. And I was like, okay, this is the <laughs> absolute crystallization. Of course, he dies at age 37 or something like that, too. You know, so um, that kind of combination, which seems to be associated with, you know, um, uh, a rather unhealthy lifestyle on several fronts is part of what the broad association jazz had with, uh, you know, musical culture. Um, but it's one that the movies really honed in on as well. Whereas mm. where were you likely to, um, you know, hear jazz in the movies? Well, quite often, you know, it would be either biopics, um, which in some ways try to do, I think, what jazz on a summer's day is, to sort of normalize it, make it, you know, just um, uh, a part of American musical culture, rather than to see it as part of the seedy underbelly of, you know, urban life. That tends to be the kind of association you get with um, with uh, the use of jazz in film noirs, for example. Um, uh, and, you know, you think about the fact that Peter Gunn featured jazz combo every week on television, right in the same period that the Newport, you know, jazz festival is more or less becoming a kind of institution. Um, and of course, part of what Blake Edwards imagined, well, you know, Peter Gunn, he's always hearing jazz because he's visiting these kind of divey, you know, um, criminal sort of milieu all along the waterfront in San Francisco. So um, jazz on a summer's day in many ways overturns all of those kinds of narrative conventions that exist around uh, around jazz and gives us something quite different. So in addition to being full of these great performances, uh, this has to be one of the all-time great films of people listening to music. 
um, the audience is as much a part of this film as the musicians. We have all, like you're sort of talking about, we have all these rapturous shots of people listening, dancing, enjoying the concert, being there. The sheer pleasure of experiencing live music has rarely been so well represented. You know, it's not Gimme Shelter. This is an almost ecstatic right. experience. Well, you could say that um, that the film does for music listening what, say, Kiristami's film Sheeran does for film watching, which is to kind of, you know, cast a light on something that we, uh, you know, all too often don't see other than the kind of very brief reaction shots we get of people applauding concert performances or musical performances in narrative films. Um, and yes, that that is very much a kind of feature of the uh, experience of the film, especially because, you know, you get to see musicians appreciating other musicians at certain times as well. So there's the cut to Jerry Mulligan listening to Thelonious Monk. Um, and Mulligan you know, was himself a little bit of an institution. I think he played every one of the earlier Newport uh, Jazz Festival gigs um, up through 58. Um, And yet, you know, he's there to listen to Monk just like everybody else is, you know. Um, And there are people who, you know, there's that moment very early in the film where you hear someone being interviewed and it's just played as kind of voiceover and they say, oh, who are you here to see? Jerry Mulligan, you know? Um, So the sense that people can be both, you know, appreciative listeners, um, even as they're performers playing for other appreciative listeners is, is something that's kind of just built into the fabric of the film. Um, The one moment though, that proved to be, you mentioned people dancing and that proved to be a bit of cause for controversy during at least one performance, which was Chuck Berry, you know? And Chuck Berry's performance is fascinating on so many different levels, in part because um, he was, by some accounts, a bit of a late addition. Um, It took the power of John Hammond uh, as, you know, a kind of talent scout, you know, musical impresario, you know, Columbia Records executive to get Barry into the lineup. And one of the things that you'll notice that's very curious about that is most of the other performers who we hear um, as part of what was an evening of the blues. That was essentially the selling point of that part of the program. Now, the performances are, to some extent, a little bit disaggregated. But um, uh, Big Maybell, for example, uh, was part of that program. Ray Charles was going to be a part of it. And for Hammond, it was a way of suggesting, okay, blues, gospel, you know, it's part of what Mahalia Jackson is there to do at the end of the evening is to suggest ways in which jazz is itself just part of a much larger, um, uh, a much larger sphere of vernacular black music that cuts across a number of different styles. And so Chuck Berry, as a rock and roller, was kind of shoehorned into this program uh, really at um, Hammond's insistence. And what's striking is um, that the rest of the backing musicians just watch him, you know? Um, Joe Jones kind of comes in occasionally, and it's not clear. Some people think he's looking, you know, 
sort of enthused by this, you know, display of of kind of rock and roll bravado on uh, on Barry's part because he will play drums at certain points uh, during the performance of Sweet Little Sixteen. Uh, Rudy Rutherford does accompany him uh, clarinet, but just when you say that, it makes you realize how unusual that is. Clarinet is not exactly a rock and roll <laughs> instrument, right? right? You think of drums, yes. But bass, piano, um, saxophone even, you know, these are things that would have made sense to play along with, and yet nobody's playing. Mm. And there are a couple of reasons why this fascinates me particularly. One is um, that Barry's uh, performance did prove to divide the audiences. So there were people who were up, who were dancing. They tended to be young people, and there were old folks who were saying sit down <laughs> and a fight broke out and police were called wow. <laughs> uh, and eventually everything kind of got sorted out but nobody else had that kind of completely divisive response of the audience out uh watching uh the performance but also the people on stage who were kind of looking around and smiling and like can you believe <laughs> this is what we're seeing now of course Part of what made this possible was the fact that Chuck Berry, um, throughout much of his career, uh, really had uh, a touring uh, philosophy of, you pay for Chuck Berry. (laughs) You don't pay for any backing musicians. In fact, you have to provide uh, some of those musicians. Very late in life, he would bring his son on tour who played bass for him. But then the other positions, like I need a drummer, I need a piano player. And those would have to be supplied by the, the concert promoter. Um, and of course, there are famous stories about how like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band got to back up Barry because he didn't you know, this was around my ding-a-ling when he was ex- uh, experiencing a kind of resurgence in the 70s. And very early in their career, they played Barry's music. Um, well, nobody's playing <laughs> this because, of course, it's just Chuck Berry. That's what the promoters asked for. That's what they got. But it's also this kind of fascinating window into musical culture of the 50s as well. Because when you dig a little deeper into uh, Barry's history, you realize why he insisted upon that. And because when he was first coming up, his breakout hit was Maybelline. And Maybelline, as most people recognized, was a sort of rock and roll version of an old country song called Ida Red. And so a lot of promoters very early on, having heard the song on the radio, booked Chuck Berry, thinking what they were getting was uh, a kind of souped up country singer, right? And tacitly assuming this guy's white. And he would show up with his band in tow, having paid for all of the costs of traveling across country from St. Louis, where he was based, to, you know, somewhere in North Carolina, only to have the promoter say something to the effect of, I'm so sorry, uh, sir, but um, I can't put you out on that stage. That audience will kill you Um, because they're expecting a white man. And uh, that happened way too often in Barry's career that at a certain point he just said, it's not worth the risk for me to pay for a band to tour. And he insisted from that point on, and 
you supply the other musicians and you pay me in cash. Um, you know, the kind of joke is he would, wouldn't do encores typically. Um, he would kind of duck walk off the stage. He would hand his guitar to an assistant. He would grab his bag of cash, get in a limo, and he was gone. <laughs> wow. Um, and what's interesting is you can see, even just from this little performance, a little bit of that, uh, that sense of bravado. Uh, but one that's kind of hard-earned, that he had had some very tough business lessons, um, you know, as a as a young rock and roll musician. Well, this film is full of uh, a lot of vocal jazz performances beyond just the instrumental ones, um, which is really striking, you know, to me as a viewer. What do you make of the vocal performances? Well, the real star of the film, in some ways, becomes Anita O'Day. And I don't think that was something that was particularly expected. She wasn't, you know, one of the headliners. She's performing uh, fairly early in the day, um, really in more of a supporting role. Uh, but she ends up sort of stealing the film to some extent because she does uh, very unusual performances of two kind of jazz standards, Sweet Georgia Brown and T for Two. Um, and yet it's almost as though she's kind of musically deconstructing them in the act of performing them because they don't really sound like um, what we think of as, you know, the whistled version we hear with the Harlem Globetrotters of, um, of, uh, of Sweet Georgia Brown or T for Two is something you might think of as, you know, a, you know, Shirley Temple duet. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and this really revived her career. You know, people will talk about her performance um, at the Newport Jazz Festival in 58 as giving her career life in the same way that uh, the festival did for Duke Ellington in 56, where he does the, you know, now legendary long version of... Uh, diminuendo and crescendo in blue with Paul Gonzalez taking this long, long epic solo. Uh, well, people will suggest that for Anita O'Day, um, the festival had a similar effect that she became uh, on everybody's list as someone you want to you want to bring uh, to your club or you know for television performances. Um, and this is partly a comeback story because she had been herself in lots of legal trouble throughout the 1950s um, because she had been busted for uh, possession of pot, but she had all also been experimenting with lots of other drugs in the 50s, uh, had a pretty serious problem, and she kind of cleaned herself up, and this was really the... Um, the coming out party for the new clean sober Anita O'Day and she's she's fantastic. Um there is a um interesting story that I read that uh she had told about her own vocal style that she doesn't use much vibrato. Now it's very clear that she can um, but she didn't use much because a small part of her uvula had been clipped and she claimed that that kind of affected her uh 
vocal style uh, as she performed. And she tended to perform with, you know, she just hits every note very precisely. Uh, and that's a kind of lost art of singing that, you know, we don't get. Watch any performance on American Idol and, you know, people are, seem to be circling around the note that's the actual pitch about six times before they finally land on it. Um, that very precise vocal style is something that the jazz singers, the great jazz singers, um, really had mastered. And I'm thinking of not just Anita O'Day, but, you know, Sarah Vaughan and, you know, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, and this is a kind of window on that kind of skill where she is very precise about every note she hits. Most of it doesn't use vibrato in any way. Um, and, and she's also scatting, you know, with the kind of skill that we associate with people like Ella and, and certainly Louis Armstrong. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing all of your knowledge and expertise and enthusiasm for jazz on a summer's day with us here on the podcast. Yes, everybody should take advantage of the opportunity to see this great musical performances beautifully photographed it's just a you know that 82 minutes will just fly by Cinema Talk, I'm Jim Healy. The influential editing of Jazz on a Summer's Day is the work of Aram Avakian, who was later celebrated for his role as an editor for the Arthur Penn films The Miracle Worker and Mickey One, Robert Rawson's Lilith, and Francis Ford Coppola's You're a Big Boy Now. Although he steadily made the assertion that he served as co-director of Jazz on a Summer's Day and is often listed as such in several sources, Bert Stern has been the only director ever listed in the official credits on the movie. Avakian eventually did leave his mark on the film world as a director with the 70s caper movies Eleven Harrow House and Cops and Robbers, which we screened as part of our Donald Westlake series in 2017. Avakian also directed the 1970 cult oddity End of the Road, but his later years were spent as an educator, and beginning in 1983, he became chair of the film department at SUNY Purchase, where he taught filmmaking until his death at the age of 60 in 1987. At Purchase, Avakian was instructor to film students like Hal Hartley, Nick Gomez, and the Cinematech's own Ben Reiser. In the second segment of this podcast, Ben talks with fellow SUNY Purchase classmates Jeff Kushner and Bob Goss about their time spent with Avakian, as well as recalling some highlights and lowlights of Avakian's career in Hollywood, and evaluating his contributions to Jazz on a Summer's Day. Jeff Kushner has been an editor and sound editor for the past three decades, contributing to such films as Dee Snyder's Strangeland, David O. Russell's Spanking the Monkey, and Billy Bob Thornton's Sling Blade, 
as well as television shows including Law and Order and Chicago Fire. Jeff has also been an educator at the Los Angeles Film School. Director and producer Bob Goss was a founder of the independent film company The Shooting Gallery, whose first feature was director Nick Gomez's Laws of Gravity, released in 1992. Bob Goss went on to direct feature films himself, including The Last Home Run, Niagara, Niagara, and I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. He is currently a professor and assistant dean of production at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Here now are Ben Reiser, Jeff Kushner, and Bob Goss. Up the lazy river where the old bill run. Up the lazy river with the noonday sun. Lingin' in the shade of a kind of tree. Throw away your troubles, dream a dream of me, dream a dream of me. Yes. Up the lazy river where the robin song is. Two bright lights as we stroll Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeff. I started at SUNY Purchase in 1984 and graduated in 88. And you guys are a little bit older than me. I was one year before you and Bob was a year before me. And in reading Aram's uh, Wikipedia, I, they have him listed as um, being chair of the film department starting in 83. So That was my freshman year. Did you have him freshman year, Bob? Actually, I had uh, Dick uh, Rogers was uh, the, the chair of the department then. Aram was at Purchase teaching directing before that, but when he came back, he took over for Dick Rogers. So then, Bob, did you ever have Aram as a, as a professor? Yeah, my uh, junior and senior year. In my head, I had been telling myself for years that Aram died after my freshman year, but that's not true. <laughs> he, he died in 87? My senior year. Right. January of... 87. Okay, so... Yeah, halfway through our senior year. My senior year, not... I had a I had uh, an appointment to screen my senior thesis, my locked picture and sound for Aram, like, sometime in January. And uh, he died, like, four or five days before that meeting took place. He died abruptly. He died to uh, get a heart attack. I think it was actually during the break. It was the winter break, yeah. Most, if not all, of my class went to the funeral, which was up, up in this Armenian... Church. Uh, guys... It was in uh, Washington Heights, I thought. Were you guys? Were you guys there? Yeah, I was on my way in. I was. I must have been up at SUNY Purchase because, and I guess it was senior year, so I guess we we didn't really go home senior year at Purchase. The reason why I remember is because the car broke down uh, on on the Hutchinson on the way into. It was a memorial, I think, that we were going to, and I had Nick Gomez and some other people in the car. And the car broke down, and we were. It was raining, and it was snowy and ice, and it was. Uh, we were on the side of the road, and we were just imagining. I was imagining Aram's voice saying, "Kushner, don't go to this thing. You should be cutting. Get out. Get get back in the car. Turn around. Don't go to this thing." But I heard it was quite a thing. I mean, I heard that Coppola maybe in there. Jerry Mull- Jerry Mulligan, I think, played music, something to that effect. Yeah, it, was a, it wasn't a funeral. It was a memorial. That's what I attended. It was a packed house. Um, and I sat with uh, Mimi Arsham and, um, 
and some folks I didn't I didn't know. But me and he was the only one that I was sitting near that I knew. But let's go back to uh, for both of you uh, the first time your first impressions of him and and Jeff. I really I'm glad that you did his voice because that's exactly my memory of his voice. But I, I also convinced myself that that might not be accurate because I, mostly what I remember is my friend Merrill Friedman, who was in my class, uh, doing his impression of, of Aram. And that's exactly what it was. But I thought, well, Merrill might just, you know, we probably were just exaggerating. And maybe we were. But he did have that gruff voice, right? Would you say more of a caricature? But I mean, when I was thinking about him, you know, when you first mentioned doing this, I, uh, I was having a little trouble remembering his voice. And then when I quoted him just now, it came back like that. Yeah. So, and that sounded accurate to me. You know, it's kind of like, ah, come on, Kush. But he may talk to different people in different ways. With me, he was very, uh, he had some tough love with me because I was, uh, you know, a Long Islander right out of, right out of high school. And, uh, I, you know, he taught me how to really stand up for my own, opinion because I was easily easy to cave and um, he uh, he used to harass me about taxi driver for example he used to constantly tell me what a piece of crap taxi because I used to vocalize my my liking of it he's like oh it's such crap Kushner and that director just a drug addict and you know Kush you know forget that movie and he'd do it for to me for a while I couldn't even look at him when he would do it I would just look at the table there was a day that I finally, uh, uh, people remember this, but they don't, may not remember the, the fact that I stood up for Taxi Driver. Oh, yeah, that scene where he takes the girl to the porn theater, that's the dumbest scene I ever saw. So I stood up for the scene. I stood up for the movie. I still couldn't look at him. And suddenly, this is the part that people remember, there was a match flicked at me, bounced off my chest, a lit match. And I looked up and he was like, finally, finally, stand up for your opinion. But everyone remembers he flicked the match at me. I don't know if they remember that it was what it was over, but they remember the match. I, I remember had, having a senior seminar uh, with Aram in that uh, conference room, kind of a maybe a fifteen foot by fifteen foot. Uh, you, you couldn't open the window. There was a glass window in the basement of the music building. Um, with the reviews and the door would be closed, and he would be chain smoking uh, these Virginia Slim cigarettes and it was and there were ashtrays little foil ashtrays uh peppered on the on the desk and he never used them they are there's ash just he always would just kind of brush it off the front of his shirt or his jacket you know and uh he was the kind of guy that would wear two different socks yeah you know we should sort of describe him he was such a big he literally was like the iconic sort of big teddy bear of a guy like you know he was the ultimate one of those, like, bearded. He kind of looked like an R. Crumb character, I would say. Yeah, the mustache. That? He had a beard and a walrus mustache. That, as long as I knew him, for the years that I knew him, he never trimmed it. So it would always, you would rarely see his mouth. You might catch his lower lip and some of his teeth, but you would never see the upper lip. It was always, and there'd be a little yellow stain from uh, exhaling uh, nicotine awesome. uh, in his in his mustache. Um now I didn't re- remember him actually smoking cigarettes in class, but I my memory was he always had was always fooling around with an unlit cigarette, either like putting it behind his ear or like rolling around his fingers, and sometimes maybe a cigar. I just remember the uh, Vir- the Virginia Slims because it, it seemed like 
he would be like a Marlboro Red guy, and he was right. smoking these effeminate cigarettes, you know. Right. Well, I th- so that boy that but that lit match. That's like the you know the the most violent thing that I can remember happening, and I don't remember why, but I do remember Nick Gomez chasing me around. I think in that same room, like trying to kill me, like like he was mad at me about something and was chasing me around that that table. Um, <laughs> One of the main things that I remember Aram trying to do when uh, I was a student there was to get the departments to work together to get the acting departments and the design tech departments because they were kept very separate. Well, I remember the the acting students were forbidden from appearing in our movies because... Design tech as well was forbidden to design our film. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't understand that. I do understand the the reasoning of the the professors in the theater department saying that they were teaching stage acting and that our screen acting would screw up the technique that they were trying to teach the actors, which I don't... You know, looking back on it now, I think it's kind of crap, but... At least that. At least they had. I don't know what they would have said for design tech. The design tech. I I had two guys who were going to design my junior project. I don't even know what it what what it was. Um, and they started to on the soundstage, and then they were pulled from by by the department. And I remember Aram went over there, and Eric Sush and I stayed up all night doing this a sixteenth of what those guys could have done because. It was a te- they were doing a tenement apartment with water dripping and stuff like that. I mean, what we threw, what Eric and I threw together was pretty crummy. And then Aram came in in the morning, and I remember I was just like uh, lying on the prop couch like this, just like watching Eric put the paint away, and Aram pat me on the head, and it, it, that was sort of like the way he kind of treated me. I mean, it was like I so I said it was like this tough love because he'd flick matches at me or pat me on the head or one or the other, you know. I'm like a pet, I guess, but I didn't mind it at the time. It seemed okay. But the acting department thing came to a head because we had a class. I can't remember what it was called, but it wound up being a combination of the acting department and the film department. Lawrence Kornfeld was running the the acting department. And at the time, um, Lawrence Kornfeld felt very protective of the actors being, the impression I got was that being directed by inexperienced people who didn't know how to talk to actors that know, you know, Aram's thing was, ah, you know, how else are they going to find out how to do it? Yeah. It almost came, it almost proved Lawrence Kornfeld right. There was another person who I won't name, very smart person, did a very intellectual scene in that class. And when it went to be performed, one of the actresses began to cry in the middle of it, pointed at the film student and said, he didn't give me enough direction. He didn't give me good direction. And there was this, ah, from the Kornfeld side, like, you know, here's the proof. Aram, I remember specifically saying, someday, if you're lucky enough, I can't do his voice because I'll need my tea. Someday, if you're lucky enough, you'll be working full-time as an actress. And sometime when you're working full-time as an actress, you're going to come across a director who doesn't give you the direction that you need. And you're still going to have to do your job. You're going to have to do your job anyway. And uh, I never forgot that. I mean, I passed that on to, when I was teaching, I passed that on because, you know, I was trying to encourage my students to learn the language. But the idea that you might be out there expecting things to be a certain way and they're not that way and they're going to cause you to either collapse or do your job anyway make up for what you're not getting in the case of yeah 
the actor, it was pretty sensitive, but I thought it was a great lesson. I do remember we did take classes together with the acting students, and right, there was that Kornfeld class, and I also had some kind of an acting class that I think was taught by Israel Hicks. There was one class where I was acting, but then either it was another part of the same class or a different class where I actually had to direct the actors in a scene to be performed live in this class. And I don't know what scene I directed, but I remember uh, Israel Hicks was not happy. And in my report card, he wrote something about Riser is laid back as to exceed California laid back. (laughs) There was something, there was some bit of business with like a pen that falls on the ground. And then the actress had to like go pick up this pen. And he was mad because the staging sort of like had her bend over with her behind to the audience. And he really was not happy with that. And I don't even, you know, I don't think it was, I think I just said, oh, do yeah, whatever back you to the do. audience. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, you know, I saw Robert De Niro in a play called Cuba and his teddy bear. And he did a lot of back to the audience. And it, it showed that uh, there's a time and place where back to the audience can work. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're one of those directors. I might be. Uh, Bob, you have any uh, Aram anecdotes that sprung to mind? Well, many, but I mean, you know, as it re- revolves around directing instruction, one thing he said to me was um, something along the lines of um, don't tell the actor what to do, have them do the scene, and then ask questions. Because there's life in the questions. If you just give them a statement, it's dead. But if you give them questions, then there's life. Then you can explore. You can find out what they're thinking. Don't tell them what you're thinking. And then you guide them. You guide them with questions. Don't tell them what Mm -hmm. to do. And that stuck with me. um, Because I don't think I knew what he exactly meant in the moment. But the, um, the conviction he said it with stuck with me and then years later when i was directing actors it came back to me and in the rehearsals i i I deployed that advice and it was uh it was welcomed by the actors to say the least it was very uh practical in the way that he approached the material and and the way he just talked about it very real very matter of fact which is i guess very much like the way he was and he was like he was very concerned with the actual he was more concerned with the actual doing of the thing than the theory and the ideas behind the thing. But he also knew the dark side of when the ego takes over. I mean, he knew the dark side of the business. He knew how to succeed or, or fail in real circumstances. He learned that, you know, the hard way. His stories about working in the business weren't so happy all the time, especially his stories about Eleven Harrow House. And, and it isn't always an integrity with, you know, your thoughtful aesthetic. You know, he was... A Yale student and a Sorbonne student and, you know, a very intellectual guy. And so to have him evolve to this very more truthful, kind of realistic, practical way of the way he talked to Bob about uh, how to talk to actors is, uh, you know, really, it really shows the balancing act that needed to, to take place. Because supposedly after Eleven Arrow House, uh, people didn't want to want him to direct anymore. But that was a conflict that happened with uh, Charles Grodin. Yeah, they did not get along. Uh, Grodin was convinced to taking on Eleven Harrow House because of the, it was, uh, at the time, a popular book in certain circles, uh, the Barthes book. And um, 
he had just come off like the sunshine kid and he was kind of hot property at the time. And Aram had just come off of doing this extraordinary independent film. And he was kind of seen as an up and coming um, new wave director, for lack of a better word. And so Groden took a flyer on Aram and they uh, apparently once they got over to England, they clashed uh, They're they're uh, they didn't get along. Um, and uh, Groden later said that that, you know, his instinct bore him out because the film didn't really amount to much in his in his view. I haven't seen Eleven Harrow House in 30 years, but I remember thinking it was a really cool heist flick. I saw I remember Eleven vacuuming all the diamonds and all that, and, you know. Yeah, the cockroach painted cockroaches going up and down uh, the elevator shaft. I saw that in the theater. Um, what I heard about it was that Grodin wanted it to be more light. He put like a comedic voiceover on it. Ultimately, because uh, Aram was more interested in the uh, the caper aspect of it, and the previous film that Aram did, I think, was Cops and Robbers, which was reasonably well met. It was, you know, his he he staked his claim with End of the Road, and uh, and he also did a a, a Lassie esque dog movie called Lad a Dog, which he told me about. Yeah, that one always that Lad Dog always seemed to be part of the uh, whatever punchline Aaron would add, you know about when he would tell stories about his Hollywood career it was always, and I also did Lad Dog. Don't ask me about it. And there so, was always something about yeah. the dog shit in the field and yeah. stuff like that. So it sounded like a you know Aaron was he, a guy. He didn't. He he was he never struck me as as a, as a particularly boastful guy or somebody who tried to uh, sound more, you know, important or successful than he was. But he did have a lot of Hollywood stories. I remember him talking and it it never came off as sort of bragging, but like movies that he had turned down that he had had the chance to direct, but didn't. And I remember him talking about Jaws. Do you remember that, Kush, that he was... I don't. I, I don't remember talking, him talking about Jaws, and I, I, I think I would have. I, I know. I mean, he did talk about the potential of taking over on The Godfather at one point. Well, Aaron was. The Aaron was originally on The Godfather. He had cut the Rain People. Yeah, I think You're a Big Boy Now is the one he did for Coppola because it was earlier than Rain People, I think. Oh, you might be right. Sixty six or something every, like that. Taught him everything for Humble. I think he said he taught him everything. I taught Copeland everything he knows. That's that's the humble side. <laughs> yeah. He also, I remember him telling a story, and this might have been when Ralph Rosenblum was was uh, on faculty. I remember Aram complaining about Mel Brooks and sort of the Mel Brooks comedy click and there being this click in Hollywood centered around Mel Brooks and I probably Carl Reiner, where they, he he got this sense that they were the ones who would determine whether you were good enough to direct comedy or not. And Aram was apparently, you know, out of that club. And, and, and you know, word got back to him that, you know, that Mel Brooks didn't think he, he could direct comedy. The, the thing about Aram was he, when, when that, when that uh, line of Jewish... Uh, New York live television and your show shows Woody Allen... Dick Cavett, uh, you know, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, they all came up in New York in the early 50s uh, with the advent of live television, mid-50s. Aram spent the earlier part of the 50s, you know, hanging out in Paris with George Plimpton and Terry Southern and that whole crowd. So he was coming 
intellectually, you know, when he got to New York and started editing, I think, documentaries that, that got it. And, and he was taking photographs, I think, as well for his brother, uh, who's a, a jazz uh, uh, producer, as, as you see in the doc, Jazz on a Summer's Day, George Vakian. Um, uh, so I don't think uh, Aram's uh, intellectual, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, place was was aligned with Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks and and that kind of uh, Borscht Belt comedy transferred to you know television. I mean, for that for a window there, Aram was really uh, poised to become you know one of the great directors, and it's no joke. I mean, he he came about editing with the the Coppola film. Uh, he also did that film Lilith for Robert Rosen and Mi Miracle Worker and <laughs> Mickey One, and that was Arthur Penn and. Yeah, yeah. He was peers with like Hal Ashby. He was having following a similar trajectory around the same time. They were the same age virtually uh, as Hal Ashby. And we see what happened to Hal Ashby once he got into the studio system. It killed him. But the editing that that, that uh, Aaron was doing was pretty radical. I mean, Miracle Worker and Mickey One and stuff. It's it's uh, you know it, it's really motivated by the content and by the characters and by the work, and it has this this freedom in it that, uh, you know, that you can also see in the editing of uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day. And it is very jazz-esque. With Jazz on a Summer's Day, you know, it's like, I know that there's some recent controversy over who's the director and, and stuff like that, though I'd always seen it as co-directed because I knew that that Bert Stern had been a, a fashion photographer and that he shot the footage. And... And that the collaboration was he shot it and Aram cut it. And, you know, whatever that collaboration happened and it continued in the editing room, whatever it might be, if you see the film, it's it's the, it's the editing and the performances and the coverage of it. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of information given in the way that it's edited, a lot of juxtaposition, a lot of commentary about the way that rhythms come into random rhythms come into our life is a lot of about in a different way from like the last waltz or song remains the same it's uh it's more about the the audience response to it's almost like resp response and reply to the music itself it's early in the in the film when it's early in the in the day and some of the audience is talking more and you know then the announcer is talking about tie music timings and things like that and people are like oh, 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 falling asleep and then this connection starts to happen and by the time the evening falls, you know, the audience has embodied the music and has also made this sort of, starts to make this connection with the performers. And that, uh, that wall of division uh, of the artist and the audience seems to dissolve. And he shoots these, you know, extremely intimate close-ups, but mostly from out where the audience is. He's not really up on the stage with the, with the performers all the time. So it's, it seems very purposeful in and its language and what it wants to communicate and what it wants to say, besides being a document of a music event, it seems to say something about music. And, uh, and it uses that time, the time of the passage of the day. You know, you can feel the evening coming on and things like that. I mean, it has that vibe to it. I think it's, um, I mean, it feels very much like a collaborative work, uh, but I guess there's some kind of legal thing with. Um, well, I, I, I too had always understood when we were in school that that you know he talked about it as something that he directed or co-directed. 
But I also remember seeing it in school and having a discussion with classmates like, oh, wait, his name is not actually in the credits as director at all. You know, he only. Oh, did it actually say it back then? Because I couldn't remember. I used to have a VHS of it that was really hard to watch. The yeah. visual and audio quality were impossible. Now, so these, I, I mean, in the, if you watch this new restoration, um, it seems like it's the original credits and it, and it, and it jibes with my memory is that. Um, he's only credited as, as editor on, in, on the film titles itself, mm-hmm. and, it's, and his name doesn't appear until the very last second of the film. Yeah, it's the la- um, last title card. Yeah, which is also kind of an interesting last title card mm-hmm. to have the uh, editor. So, you know, I, I, and but when you look when you look it up online, it, it almost everywhere talks about it being co-directed by the two of them. And I don't know. I do understand that the that the that Bert Stearns. Uh, relatives are are not happy with that designation, and I don't know if there was always friction between the two of them, even while when they were alive. Um, well, it's his only it's his only directing credit, so you know, let him have it. Right, right, right. <sighs> it's true. It's it's not that's no. that's what I thought about. That's why I thought Aaron must. I mean, Aaron must have. Um, he must have co-directed this thing because, or else, I don't know why he would have would have kept saying it. It's not like he needed that for his resume. You know, by the time we knew him, like you said, he had directed End of the Road and Cops yeah. and Robbers and Eleven Harrow House. He didn't need to like sort of puff up his piece by saying that he co-directed this thing unless he really felt like he had. And at that point, he'd done enough films to sort of know what it meant to direct something. So, like you say, so much of this film seems to be in the editing, and. and and I think this film is fun to watch and, and a good reminder, um, uh, you know, how much of documentaries are actually sort of crafted in the editing and that all these, you know, all these stories that get told in this film, the, the interaction between the crowd and the performers, you know, that's all stuff that Aram made up because, yeah, you know, if you, you ever discover that in the footage. Right. Exactly. And you and, you know, he's taking he's taking footage of people having reactions to who knows what they were listening to at the time. Like, you know, this is an independent film shoot. The the chances that they were running, you know, multiple cameras all day during those performances and those people were actually listening to what we're listening to when you see them take a bite of a hot dog or make a particular face is, I think, slim to none. Yeah. No, I don't imagine it to be a multiple camera shoot, but. And you got to cover the performances while they're happening. Because I remember being somewhere with him, and he was with his girlfriend at the time, who was this ballet dancer, Allegra Kent. You know, he had a history of, uh, he'd also been married to Dorothy Tristan, who uh, is the star of End of the Road. Um, So he had these accomplished, beautiful women in his life, uh, off and on. But I remember Allegra Kent really made an impression on me. And what I... What I what I found out today, and here here might be the source of some of this friction. I didn't know this until today that Allegra Kent in the '60s was married to Bert Stern. Interesting. But I'm trying to think of other things about Aram that would be apropos of um, this conversation. That uh, I remember he was he called me Bob Gossi. He's a Gossi. Hey Gossi, you know I know Bob Fosse, and he did. He was he was a a Brill building um, contemporary of Bob Fosse and uh, Patty Chayefsky and Rosenblum and that whole cabal. Um, they were all chain smoking, you know, late 60s, early 70s Brill building dudes, you know. But he always he was always very encouraging to me, like one on one in in the editing room was the best instruction I would get from Aram. And, and the other instruction in class would either be in the lectures that he if you could call them lectures 
in the conference room or in the mixing studio. Sometimes we would be screening our work and we would, you know, he, we'd conduct class in that mixing uh, facility, you know, in that room by the, um, you know, where the, the transfer machines were, you know. Yeah. Um, so a lot of smoky, uh, hazy cigarette smoke in classroom time in that mixing room with Aram. Well, here's, I'll tell you my Aram anecdote. Um, and the thing that will always stick with me and the, the sort of the most, the most impact he made on my life was uh, I, at some point freshman year, I had to write a short story. I don't know what class it was for. And I, Aram read it and um, he wrote, he wrote something about it and said, Oh, it's like Salinger. You're trying to do Salinger. And, you know, I said to him, I've actually never read Catcher in the Rye. And, um, a couple of days later in my mail slot was a paperback copy of Catcher in the Rye and a handwritten note from Aram saying, this is your assignment and your assignment only. You must read this book. <laughs> so Aram got me to read Catcher in the Rye, which I loved, and I don't know that I ever would have otherwise. That's great. Somehow I had avoided reading it in high school, but there it was. I was shooting my, uh, my junior scene in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, it was a black and white thing called Peace of Mind with Billy Sage and Edie Falco. And we're shooting, uh, Edie's playing like a homeless woman and seeing as Billy going up to buy a ticket to get on the train. And Aaron walks in and he was like, what are you guys doing here? You know, and uh, <laughs> he agreed to be an extra. And uh, he did two takes for me and he wound up in the film. He's got his white baseball cap on, white baseball, uh, white, uh, like tennis shoes, uh, unlaced. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that that white, it wasn't quite a baseball cap, but it was like it was like it a painter's flimsier. Cap yeah, like a painter's yeah. cap, exactly, yeah. and like kind of dirty. Get it, uh, pergament or something, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that Aram that struck me about Aram, especially when he was, you know, because he would, he was kind of looking back on his career from where he was when he was teaching us, because you know where where idealism and art and ego all clash together, and and either your work withers and dies or it transforms into something else. And it struck me because if you've seen End of the Road, it's an extremely uncompromising movie. And I can sort of understand because there was a time period where filmmakers could really be that way until you begin to clash with the industry and talent and who's executive producer and things like that. The kind of um, freedom on End of the Road and, and, and it's interesting that it's kind of flown under the wire for so long because it it literally did make the cover of life magazine not the picture of it but you know you read the main things on the cover and it says aramavakians end of the road and some kind of thing that makes you want to read the article yeah his impact was really big and i had a two i had two situations in my professional life where aram came back around one of them was at a screening of George Clooney's film, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Uh, there was a Q&A afterwards, the film about um, Chuck Barris. And uh, so there's a Q&A with George Clooney afterwards. And he says, and there's a scene early in the film where Chuck Barris is standing naked in front of his TV. He's got his back to the camera. He's in silhouette in front of the TV. He said, I stole that shot from a film by a director named Aram Abakian called End of the Road that a lot of people don't know about. Anyway, I don't remember what the rest of the Q&A was because it was like my mind was like bent in half. 
And afterwards, I usually don't work my way through the crowds to speak to people at the Q&As because it's usually chaotic. And I often ask myself, well, what, what, what am I trying to gain from speaking to this person? <laughs> right. But I needed to tell this man that I was a student of Aramabakian's. So I worked my way, needled my way in. All the, I mean, it's George Clooney, you know, he's popular. And uh, I got to him, I said, I'm a student. I was a student of Aramabakian's. And I, I think the crowd of people waiting to talk to George Clooney might have started to get very impatient because he was interrogating me. Oh, wow. What was he like? What was, you know, what was it like? What, what, did he, what kind of things did he say? I mean, I mean, I... I think I was the one who pulled away from the conversation just because I was aware, <laughs> I, not because I didn't want to talk to him. It was right. so much fun. And to have that excitement over, you know, his excitement over Aram and this like, you know, talking about the dissolving of walls. I didn't really even think I was talking to George Clooney at that point. I was just talking to somebody who wanted to know about Aram. But I really sensed that people around me wanted to, you know, pounce on George Clooney. So I sort of rushed my way through it. Yeah. But he, you know, spoke about, uh, Aram's influence on him. And I've heard uh, Steven Soderbergh speak about Aram extensively. Well, and he 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 did get them to finally issue a DVD of uh, End of the Road and did a did a short documentary about the making of End of the Road, which I actually haven't seen. And I was we were trying to show it at um, at Cinematheque um, a year or two ago. And we we're looking for a print and couldn't doesn't seem to be a, a decent 35 print of it and they have when, the when and whenever they did whatever they did to create this dvd they did not create a dcp um and i don't think there's been like a you know a high definition scan of 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 a print or of the negative which is too bad um maybe there's still hope for that sometime in uh in 2002 i was uh, doing, I was one of the sound editors on this Adrian Lyne movie called Unfaithful that was edited by Ann V. Coates, who edited Lawrence of Arabia and Elephant Man, and she also edited Aram's film Eleven Harrow House. So we're at lunch one day, and everybody's just talking very casually. So on the walk back to the editing rooms from lunch, she, I was in sound department. She's obviously picture. We're going off in different directions. I said to her... Um, you actually edited a film for someone who was a teacher of mine. She says, Aram Abakian? I said, yeah. She, I, said, I said, did you know that he was teaching? She said, no, but of all the directors that I worked with, he's the one that I could most imagine being a teacher. It makes a lot of sense. The way that Aram was able to break things down and talk about things and get you to get it, the way he was able to talk to me and to Bob and to leave a leave a copy of Salinger for you. He really personalized how he communicated with people. It was very individual. And uh he influences me to this day. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that of out of all the teachers and professors I've ever had, no one no one made me feel like they knew me and were talking to me because they knew who I, you know, who I was and who I could be and, and was, was catering to me on a very personal level. Uh, I, I think Aaron was, was that for me. He, he coined a term that I ripped off later and then it became a thing um, because uh, a bunch of us were making films together. Um, Billy Taylor, me, uh, Hal Hartley. Uh, we were working with Edie Falco and, and because we were all from Long Island, he's like, yeah, you're the Long Island mafia. 
Right. And when I got out of college, one of the first things, uh, one of the first interviews we did with um, uh, Amy uh, at, at the uh, Village Voice, one of the film writers, uh, sh- um, I said we were the Purchase Mafia because it was Nick Gomez and and Hal and and Whitney and and everything and uh, and so she took she put that in, in her article. Uh, Amy Taubin uh, at the Village Voice. And then suddenly that became a thing, like when they were referencing the independent film thing, it was the Purchase Mafia. But that yeah. came from the Long Island Mafia that was coined by uh, Aaron. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to catch up with both of you. Thanks for uh, helping paint this picture of our old friend Aaron Mavakian. Uh-huh.